Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in. Welcome to the Prayer House Podcast. Our mission and vision is simple, to spread the gospel and good news to the ends of the world and to do it by building a community whose foundation is Jesus Christ. So welcome to the family. We hope you enjoy this message and that it is a blessing to you. Hey, Prayer House. Praise the Lord. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to come and speak in front of you guys. I'm so honored to have been given the privilege to speak to this ministry, which I truly love from the bottom of my heart. Um, just before I begin, let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, I come before you right now and I submit myself to you as I speak to your people and I pray that you give me the wisdom to speak what you want me to speak, Lord. I pray that the words that come from my mouth are not my own, but from whatever the Holy Spirit leaves, Lord. Lord, whatever I've written down, let it be removed if the Holy Spirit doesn't want it. Whatever I haven't written, let it be added if the Holy Spirit wants that. Lord, I pray that you open the hearts and minds of the believers that they may understand and receive your word and that they may be able to apply it in their daily lives, Lord. Thank you once again. In the most precious name of Jesus Christ, I pray. So some of you may know me. My name is Jeffrey and I live up in Canada. So I've been blessed to come visit Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, and Philadelphia. And this was about four and a half years ago. And it's wonderful knowing that all of the prayer house leaders come out of these places. You guys come from very beautiful regions with diverse histories and backgrounds, a rich culture, culture of entertainment and cuisine, of human advancement and feats in education. As great as all these attributes are, I truly believe that it isn't the features that make the city, but the people themselves who make the city. I can observe the quality of people these regions hold from my time attending prayer house, and I look forward to visiting again when God brings me back. So we had a family move here to Canada from New York. Maybe they felt it was time to upgrade from the greatest city on earth to the greatest country on earth. I don't know. They enrolled their kids in a local elementary school. The eldest, the eldest son came back on the first day of being enrolled in kindergarten and said, Dad, Dad, I'm the only student in my class who knows my ABCs. Is it because I'm a New Yorker? Yes, yes, son, the dad replied. It's because you're a New Yorker. The next day, the son comes again. Dad, Dad, I'm the only student in my class who can count it to 10. It's because I'm a New Yorker. Yes, yes, son, the dad replied. It's because you're a New Yorker. On the third day, the sun comes again. Dad, dad, I'm the tallest in my class. Is it because I'm a New Yorker? No, son, the dad replied. It's because you're 25 years old. Got a lot of love for my New York friends and thank you for being good sports. It really is the greatest city in the world. Every time I hear a variant of this joke, it makes me chuckle, even though I know the punchline that's coming. When we deconstruct the joke, we see that separates people into two groups, us and them, and then it denigrates the intelligence of the latter group while providing the former with some easy laughs. But if we look further though, what is funny? What makes the punchline punchy in this dialogue? It's the fact that we have certain expectations pertaining, pertaining to the life stage of a 25-year-old compared to someone who's in kindergarten. When a two-year-old says he has to go potty, it's cute. When that same two-year-old can read a novel, it's extremely impressive. Either or from a 25-year-old is either mundane or somewhat sad. Take my man, Tom, who I've seen in the call. I think he's still here. 
hope he hasn't left yet after um, insulting you here. Um, so maybe he's sending out resumes for IT jobs. If he's listed under his skills, reading and writing, would that impress anyone? Let's ignore the fact that having a completed resume heavily implies that he has some knowledge of reading and writing. If any employer saw that, would they go, that's our man, these are the skills we are looking for. If so, sign me up for that kind of job. But jokes aside, there's an expectation when you've come to this level and are applying for a position that you hold some basic competencies, which are widely held by society. <clears throat> In 2005, NHL head coach Jacques, Jacques Demer admitted that he was illiterate and that he had held roles as a head coach and general manager for professional hockey teams while being unable to read, except for being able to sign his own name. He masked this his whole life by looking at paperwork and asking for a summary, by pretending to read the newspaper every day, and by hiring people who would do all the reading to work for him. His cover was that his English wasn't strong and that he preferred French. He spent decades living a lie. As we go through life, we're expected to mature with age and obtain certain skills and competencies with time. To not do so can elicit scorn, judgment, or even confusion. It can lead to labels and rejection. Similarly, spiritual life comes with expectations of maturity and growth. Paul wrote about this to the Corinthians, calling them babies. He said in the first book of chapter three, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now, you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Just as we expect babies to grow up and become productive members of society, that same expectation is placed on Christians to grow from new believers into seasoned marathon runners in our walks with Christ. We're talking this week about intimacy with God. We read in Romans chapter five, verse eight, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why is this? Why would God send his only begotten son to die for us in our state of sin? Why could we not be redeemed any time before that? Why was this the only way? Why was this the only path? Many of you know the story of William Tyndale. As he was burned on the cross for translating the Bible into English, his last prayer was, God opened the eyes of the King of England. Many saints died for this gospel to reach your hands, this word of truth. To reject intimacy with God and bask in lukewarmness is inexcusable. So what is intimacy with God? What does it require? Intimacy with God requires intent. It requires immediacy. It requires immersion. And it requires imitation. So what is intent? can be a resolve or determination to do something, to show earnest and eager attention. I've been a Christian for 28 years. 
but only a follower of Jesus for three years. There is a difference. The two are not conflatable. Growing up, I was trained to read my Bible in the morning and evening. Before I was 18, I had been through the entire Bible at least seven times, cover to cover. Yet, what was my takeaway? It was seeing God as the sky genie who made life better. With no real understanding of the Bible, despite reading it that many times, because of lack of role models and other factors. My heart was hardened the way I saw people living who claimed to be followers of Jesus. My eyes weren't fixed on the author and perfect of our faith, Jesus, as Paul wrote, but on pastors and peers. I was self-righteous to the extent that I believed heaven was owed to me for the self-sacrifice of not chasing most of the pleasures of the world. Let me tell you how wicked my heart was. Um, recently, a family friend was calling up my dad and saying that um, they do daily prayer calls and they wake up at 5 a.m. And they said that their friend's son also wakes up with them to pray every morning at 5 a.m. And nobody's forcing him. He's praying on his own. He's getting up and praying on his own. He's only 10 years old. Even in my childhood, but especially in my teenage years, my mind was so perverse to hate hearing these kind of stories because I was so rooted in the flesh, because I despised the command to delight in the Lord. And where did that stem from? I despised the command to delight in the Lord because I viewed my own faulty relationship with God as an extension of others' relationships with God and assumed they were faulty too and allowed me to mislabel and despise others who were doing what is right. So, you know, we all have a cell phone in today's day and age, right? Especially, um, you know, if you're on the older side, teenagers, young adults, etc. We all have our lives on our cell phones, right? Social media and all of that and calls and texts, whatnot. And with that, we all have a relationship with our phone, right? Some of us, we can disconnect pretty easily, but others, it's hard to be removed from it, right? So I was at a place where in this past summer, I was waking up on a weekend and I would find myself just spending my whole day on my phone. And I get up at like, 9 a.m., 10 a.m. on a Saturday, and before I know it, it's 3 p.m., and I've just spent the whole day texting people, haven't changed out of my pajamas, haven't eaten any food, um, just doing whatever on my phone. And I remember feeling disgusted with myself, like, surely there's more to life than this. And a few years ago, I had picked up my practice of reading my Bible again. So I told you between ages six and 18, I read the Bible seven times. Then I got into university and I felt I didn't need that anymore. I felt I knew everything there is to know about the Bible and the word of God. And I felt that I was doing more important things and I didn't have time. So during my undergrad, I stopped reading my Bible. Um, but I picked up that habit again when I, a few years ago, maybe four or five years ago. I picked up the habit of reading Bible again, but even still, some days it didn't happen. You know, some days I would be going on my phone and it didn't happen. It didn't happen, right? So 
this past summer during COVID, during this heightened alertness of everything that was going on in our world, I could only feel disgust with myself when I was engaging in that same repetitive behavior again. I made a decision and that decision was to read my Bible every morning before I touch my phone, to be intentional, intentional about putting God first. I didn't know what was gonna happen. I didn't know what the results were gonna be. I knew it wasn't gonna be easy because sometimes you are waiting for a message in the morning or you wanna check your email or something's going on and you have that tendency to grab your phone first thing in the morning. But I'd made a decision. I can afford to take 20 minutes, 30 minutes and put God first before I check what's going on in the land of social media, what's going on in my emails, what's going on in my other um, business and affairs. That intent was there. That intent to seek more int intimacy with God by putting him first was there. The next word I said was immediacy. Immediacy is the quality of bringing one into direct and instant involvement with something or giving rise to a sense of urgency or excitement. Intimacy with God starts now, not tomorrow, not later, but as soon as you've been made aware of the urgency, as soon as you've received that sense of excitement, you cannot put off intimacy with God once you've been made aware of how important it is. You know, we sing, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. What do we sing? The cross before me, the world behind me. It's not the cross beside me and the world beside me, right? One goes in front, the other goes in, in the back. One is placed behind us, the other is in forward. Our eyes are fixed on one, not both. So when we think about intimacy with God, we think about intent and now we think about immediacy. Intent is I'm making a choice to do this. Immediacy is I have to start doing this now. The third word that came to me as I was mulling over this topic was immersion. Immersion is defined as deep mental involvement, to be surrounded by, not covered with, which, which is submersion, but to be surrounded by. Intimacy with God is an immersive experience. Your thoughts and motives are Christ-centered. Putting Jesus at the center is not a circumstance, situation, or trend. It's a lifestyle. Your, mich your mission and vision is to reflect his glory. You choose daily to die to yourself, to your flesh, and to pursue him alone. I'll repeat that again. Putting Jesus at the center is not a circumstance, situation, or trend. It's a lifestyle. We're always singing, you know, Jesus at the center of it all, and we're quoting that, and we're praying that, but are we really living that? Second Corinthians chapter three, it reads in verse 18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the glory of the Lord 
are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. We are called daily to die to ourselves, to reflect his glory as if he were looking in a mirror. And we will not achieve that in this lifestyle, in this lifetime, no matter how holy we are, no matter how spiritual we are, no matter how religious we are, no matter how many meetings we attend, no matter how many, how many hours we spend praying and reading the Bible, we will not achieve that in this earthly body and in this sinful body that will not be achieved. But we are called daily to come closer and closer to conforming to his image, to reflecting his glory. To do that, we need to be immersed. We need to be deeply mentally involved with him. We need to deeply desire him, to be thinking about him at all times, to be focused on the cross, to be focused on what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be focused on the consequences of following Jesus versus the consequences of continuing continuing in our old lives of sin. In Romans chapter 1, Paul opens with, in verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. What a list. As I prattled the those items off, could you see any of those applying to yourself? Could you think about any of those being relevant to you? You may not see yourself as a wicked person. You may not see yourself as committing the big sins, but do you have envy in your life? Are you proud? Do you disobey your parents? Are you untrustworthy? Are you unmerciful? We need to reflect on who we are, right? We need to reflect on the lives we are living. We need to reflect on our motivations, our thoughts, and we need to purge whatever doesn't belong, whatever doesn't fit into the Christ-centered model. We need to purge those from our lives. And I believe that we can only come to this point by continuing to seek intimacy with God by being intentful, by being immediate about it, by immersing ourselves in it. As well in Romans chapter eight, it says we are adopted into sonship, which means we cannot keep going in sin. We cannot keep yielding to the flesh. We cannot be rooted in the world and rooted in Christ. It's one or the other. Remember Jesus said, you love two masters, you have two masters, you'll love one and hate the other. You'll serve one and despise the other. We can only be rooted in one, the world or in Christ. We cannot allow our flesh to 
control us. We cannot allow our flesh to overtake us. And by our flesh, I mean our desires. When somebody says something hurtful to us, is your immediate desire to say something hurtful back? Or is it to plot some vengeful action? Or is it to treat them in a hurtful manner later? If so, you're rooted in your flesh. If somebody asks you an uncomfortable question and you have to give them an answer, is your first tendency to tell them a lie or to mislead them with deception? If so, you are still rooted in your flesh and the flesh needs to die. Romans 12, Paul wrote, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The renewing of your mind. We can only be transformed if our eyes are, if our mind is renewed. We are called to be a living sacrifice. What does it mean when we're asked to be a living sacrifice? It means that when I'm angry, Jeffrey isn't winning. Jeffrey's anger isn't winning. Jeffrey's frustration isn't winning. Jeffrey's disappointment isn't winning. Jeffrey's vengeance isn't winning. All that is dying. Jeffrey is dying. And he's yielding himself to conform to the image of Christ. And that's the same for each and every one of you here. You're all called to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And that's the service that we're all asked. But yet the world makes it out to be impossible. The hardest thing we could ever do. One of the most difficult tasks, even in the Christian community, it's still seen as some ultimate pinnacle that very few reach and are held to a higher standard for achieving. Yet we're all called to make that sacrifice daily. And we know that God would not place any requests upon us that would be impossible for us to do. And when I say this, I mean, though we are called to be a living sacrifice, it's not by our own might and willpower that we come to that place where we are living as a living sacrifice, but it's through his grace alone. His, his mercies are new every morning, right? And it's by yielding to that that we operate in that and live as a sacrifice daily, dying to ourself and proving what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. We're to use our gifts for the glory of God, repay no evil, be humble. These are all concepts reiterated on and on in the gospel. My last point is imitation. Imitation is intended to simulate or copy something else. It's the action of using someone or something as a model. We are called to imitate Christ. Um, there's a song that came out last year, the year before, I forget. Um, I forget the band's name, but it's called The Proof of Your Love. And in it, they sing, let my life be the proof of your love. When we hear the chorus playing, it sounds simplistic, but when we think about the meaning, we can ask ourselves, is my life 
showing proof of Jesus' love. Jesus loved to die on the cross for me in my sinful state. And if it's not, I think we have a problem, right? If my life isn't exemplifying the love that Jesus has for us, if the world looks at me and cannot see God's love in me, there's a disconnect. I claim to follow Jesus. I say I'm a Christian. I call myself a believer. I have all these labels on me, but yet I'm no different from the world. I look no different from people of the world. I act no different from the people who occupy the world. So keep those four points in mind when you seek intimacy with God. Intent, immediacy, immersion, and imitation. So we have three examples of individuals who are taken up into heaven in the Bible. So we know Enoch, Elijah, and Jesus. Elijah, in his most desperate place, was wishing for death. He was praying for God to take him. And we, do, we know Jesus, too, in his place of desperation was praying for God to remove the cup of suffering that had to be taken. Neither of those prayers were answered. But these are, these are our pillars of exemplary um, individuals who walked in intimacy with God. But someone we don't discuss too often is Enoch. And we don't talk about Enoch too much because we don't have a lot of verses on him. We don't, the Bible doesn't give us much detail on him. I think he's only mentioned five times or in five books of the Bible. In the book of Jude, it reads, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints, fifteen to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Saying here that Enoch was coming to execute judgment. Enoch, the one who walked with God, the one who was taken away by God to not be seen again. If you... If you know the story of Enoch, you know that he fathered his first son when he was 65 years old. And then the text says he walked with God for another 300 years, and then he was no more. Enoch's son, if you know your Bible genealogy, was Methuselah, who, had, who has the reputation of being the longest lived man in the Bible, uh, living for 969 years. And he likely died in the flood um, because he died the same year that Noah went into the ark. And we can presume that he was most likely um, taken when the flood came. And I find it interesting because he's never mentioned to have been named as righteous, even when Noah was labeled as righteous. Noah was called a righteous man among a wicked people, yet 
his own grandfather, Methuselah, received no such labels. So I find it interesting. Noah's father, Lamech, he, he died five years before the flood took place. And I see that as God in his mercy, not putting Noah in a position to leave his father behind. I don't know if his father was a good man or a wicked man per the judgment of God, but Noah's grandfather was still left behind right up until that year that the flood occurred. And he most probably did die in that flood. And you think about Methuselah, his own father walked with God and had that intimate relationship with God. And yet that didn't translate into his own life. He did not receive such accolades or titles as being a righteous among men or um, for being a good man among the wicked people like his father did and like his grandson did. And, you know, in our modern era, we might call Enoch a deadbeat dad, somebody who's too busy walking with God to take care of his family, spend time with his family. I don't know how it is, but that's how the world would label that. And yet what appealed to Enoch to forsake his family and chase God? Why aren't we doing the same? What's stopping us from chasing God too in that same manner? Hebrews 11, verse 5 and 6, it reads, By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found, because God had taken him. For before he, had, he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What it comes down to is that Enoch pleased God. And when we're walking in intimacy with Christ, we will do what is pleasing to him. And that is where our only focus is. Everything else moves into the peripheral. And we make Jesus the center. Everything else moves upward. I know many times as we go through life, um, we feel like we need to help God out. And you all look like helpful people here. Surely God wants me to be a doctor. So I'll go enroll in a science program. Surely God wants this person for me. So I'll slide into their DMs to help speed things along. Surely God wants me to take this job because it offers the highest pay. Have we heard that word before? Surely. Surely you won't die if you eat of the tree. We've been rationalizing it for generations, for centuries, for millennia. Surely if God wanted this, it would be this way. And then we go and act in opposition to that or in pursuit of our own whims and fancies. We don't necessarily um, do what is expected of us because we're not walking, we're not walking in intimacy with God. And what does God require of us? To come in faith and to walk with him closely, to please God, to live our lives daily as a pleasing sacrifice to him. That's all that's wanted of us. 
I don't know about you guys, but um, I don't often hear from God. But the few times in my life I have heard from God, it's stung. Um, like I can still feel it if I think about the conversation in my head again. So around mid-March, it was late at night and I was just thinking about things. I like to sit around and just think a lot, and be inside my head. So I was writing a poem for a fellow human being and I was thinking about the right words and the right features to capture and um, the manner to make this very well worded and um, to get across the message that I was hoping to convey. And as I was doing that late in the night, um, writing out this poem, I heard a voice and it said, how come you don't do that for me? God was asking me, how come you don't do that for me? We're placed here with our talents, with our abilities, with our gifts to glorify God. Some of you are skilled artists. How awesome would it be? There's so many different vivid scenes that were given in Revelation and Daniel. If you guys could use your skills of drawing and painting to just show those scenes out. Some of you are gifted in baking and cooking. How awesome would it be if you could feed those who don't have anywhere to eat a home-cooked meal or stuck just buying food from restaurants and canteens and whatnot. We have many gifted singers, which is apparent because our community prizes singing and gives the stage to people who have that gifting. But what if you love to sing, even though you're not a good singer? What if you love to dance, even though you might be clumsy and awkward? Can you not use that to glorify God and to just delight in his presence, to sing your heart out, to dance your heart out, even if it may not be fit for um, public consumption per the standards of the world? Some of you might be good at writing. Some of you might be good at acting. What if we're writing for God? What if we're acting to show his story, his message. What, I just give a few examples, but there's so many different talents that we have, so many different giftings we have, so many different abilities that we have. If we're daily using that to glorify his name, um, isn't that what we're called to do? Isn't that what it means to please God? Isn't that what it means to live daily, pleasing him and living as a sacrifice for him? We're not called to be the best, but we're called to give our best. So with that, I'd like to end my words and thank you again for this time. Um, you prayer house leaders do a great job, um, but as attendees like you, those of you who come and sit and listen and hear the word and worship along, you guys are what make prayer house prayer house. And I feel like I'm on PBS thing, viewers like you, but that is the truth. So thank you so much for this time. God bless you all. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray over you today that the Word of God touched you and transformed you as only His Word can. 
feel free to leave us a rating or share it with your friends. We'd really appreciate it. Till then, keep searching and continue to listen for his voice, and we'll see you again next time.